This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Truscott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 42 with Rebecca West an interior designer in Seattle at Seriously Happy Homes. Where to begin? This is like the eternal question. I feel so fortunate that my guests do such a good job at showing their personalities, their side of their stories, their side of their business, that really introducing them seems a little petty on my end because what could I possibly say that summarizes them in any which way that shines a good enough spotlight on them? What I will tell you is that you have a lot to look forward to from this conversation with Rebecca West. The conversation, you know, talks about many different things. Yes, it's about heartbreak. It's about her divorce, but it's also about remarrying and it's about commitment and what marriage really is. I'm not going to tell you. I almost told you, but I'm just going to, you know, that's a little teaser. So you'll have to listen to find out, but you know, it becomes about commitment. She talks a lot about. But of course, it's also about our home being the anchor, especially when we're without a relationship. And it's a question that you hear all the time from people is, should I get rid of the things that remind me of an ex? If I'm living in the same city, does it make sense to move, at least move to a different neighborhood? Should I get rid of my apartment? Will that help me? But then again, the smaller stuff, should I get rid of the sheets? Should I repaint the apartment? Should I rearrange the furniture? Should I get rid of the trinkets? So obviously, Rebecca can speak so well to this. But also, our conversation went in different directions at times that, of course, was completely unplanned. And, you know, a lot has happened between when I recorded this, which was before Thanksgiving, quite a few days before Thanksgiving, and now. It's wild to me. I mean, one thing is... I remember feeling like her voice was so soothing at the time. I forgot that and I was listening and editing it. It was just, uh, it perked me up. It also makes me so calm. So it was great to listen to. But I also forgot certain things that came up within our dialogue. And it's so hard for me to fathom that a few hours after I had this conversation with Rebecca, I got a text message, several text messages, my phone just going off which is never a good sign, that close friend of mine had died. For some reason, I feel like these episodes, you know, when it's an episode for someone else with a guest on, it shouldn't be about this. And so I'll keep this brief, but it is a hard thing to wrap your head around that one moment you're talking to someone else about pain and heartbreak. And then just a few hours later, you receive information that changes people's lives forever, forever. And what kind of rocked me about listening to this episode were the things I didn't remember that we spoke about. And one thing was about the importance of asking people if they're okay. 
you know, the importance of giving compliments because we often think that the people that seem the most deserving of compliments get them all the time so they don't need them. But at the same time, we forget that the people that might put on a brave face may not be good inside their soul. And for that reason, we forget to ask people if they're okay. We hoard compliments and we don't even acknowledge that someone might not seem right or that they don't have to be right. They don't have to be as strong as they're trying to be. What got brought up was my experience with my eating disorder and my hindsight of just encouraging people was about a piece that I wrote, the first piece I wrote about my eating disorder. And it entered on the the note that to be the person that asks someone twice if they really are okay and that is invested in knowing the real answer. Now, what rocks me about that conversation, that part of the conversation that I had with Rebecca is that I didn't know that my close friend was sick. And the fact that I didn't know, I mean, I was literally wailing when I found out the news that I didn't know. I didn't know. How could I not have known? And I just, you know, you know, okay, I'm getting emotional, but that of course, like that of course I, I, I wanted to be someone that I was so upset that I couldn't have been someone that could have been there and asked if she was okay. Obviously, when you lose someone, whether it's because of a death or because of a divorce, a breakup, a friendship that erodes, you can look back and you can feel guilty about all the things that you didn't do, the things that you didn't know, the things that you didn't ask, the things that you didn't express, the fact that the relationship could have been more one-sided at times than should have been or had to be. But I don't feel guilt about not knowing or not circling back at times, or the fact that this was, where they say, the one friend, she was what I consider an only friend, the only friend that had to know everything when she saw that I was falling in love, the only friend that had to know everything about my breakup, that said, tell me everything, and the next day, the only person that followed up and said, How are you today, my friend? She was the only person that ever shared my work without me asking her. So obviously, um, obviously, the fact that I never got to ask her if she was okay breaks my heart. But, but my point is that it's not guilt I feel, it's, it's regret. And, I can tell you now that I'm not going to get caught in the regret because I know that people can get stuck. And I was talking to my mom about this and she says that's when regret turns to guilt. But I think it's just more of a wake-up call. And of course, you know, it's not about using other people's death to wake us up, though it can and why not. But it's also with my close friend. She was someone that always kept people awake. She was awake to the lives of everyone else. When you were around her, she made you feel like you were the most important person to her. And she was consistent in this way. She just didn't do it to me. She didn't just care about me. She was this way with everyone. And so it's this reminder that in order to save your spirit and to amplify hers, it's about, okay, using this as a wake-up call, but also being her, embodying her essence of being fully awake to others. And so it's just a reminder to me to 
not let a text message just be it, just be the form of communication, not to just let one conversation on the phone that's deep be enough. It's a reminder to circle back. It's a reminder to ask people if they're okay. It's the want, really, to be in the known, to be sure that you know if someone's okay, to not let too much time lapse, that you'd fall, like all this time would fall away, and you wouldn't have known that they were okay. So this episode is a special one to me because I was expressing things with Rebecca that I didn't know would hold weight within a few hours to the degree that they do. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rebecca and just thank you so much for tuning in and for giving me so much reason to wake in the morning. And I will tell you that every guest, Rebecca is one of them, wakes me up. And I grew up with a father who is my hero, but he also said that anyone that naps is depressed. And for that reason, I lived in fear of ever feeling tired. I used to deprive myself of sleep. I used to judge people irrationally, rudely, boyfriends for taking naps. And the reason was is that I was so tired. And it has been this shame-based story that I have struggled to, to overcome, but I have been overcoming and it is just the most precious thing in the world to have a platform like this, to have a message like thank you heartbreak and break upward, and to have guests that choose to speak with me, to share their time with us, to share their wisdom with us, to not hoard their knowledge. It's a privilege that I have this experience and it's a gift that they wake me up just like my friend did, to everyone that she came across. Thanks so much for listening. So I would love to have you introduce yourself to my audience. I am Rebecca West, and I am an interior designer in the Seattle area, and my company is named Seriously Happy Homes. Oh my gosh, where do I start? I want to start on like seriously happy. Like, when did you become seriously happy? But I feel like I want to start with your last name since I know a little bit of the backstory. And I think it's one of the cooler things I've heard about. So tell me about your last name, Miss Rebecca West. Well, yeah. So Rebecca West, I was born Rebecca, but I was not born West. Um, I actually have gone through several last names. West, I chose for myself. So I was born with my birth name, and then I got married and had my married name. And when I got divorced, I had to make a decision about my name. Obviously, I didn't want to keep my married name. I didn't have children, so there was no need for me to keep my married name. But I didn't want that feeling of going backwards in my life. Like that whole marriage that I'd had was part of what made up the fiber of who I am. So I needed something that was going to be about this next chapter, not about retreating into an earlier chapter of my life. So I tried on a whole bunch of last names, just kind of like you do when you're in middle school and you're trying out like boys' names. I tried on these names and I wanted something that was short and easy to remember and like really represented that feeling of adventure. And West, to me, did all of that. It was easy to remember, and it's about pioneering and adventuring and not being afraid, having courage. And it's been my name ever since. It's about direction. That's what I think is so great about it. Yeah. So, so I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened when you got married? 
married. In terms of na- my name, yeah. um, I was pretty clear when I really chose West, I really felt like I had kind of come home to the name I was always supposed to have. Mm-hmm. So when I was choosing to get married again, I was pretty clear with my new husband that that was going to stay my name. Like he, that's who he was marrying. I had no intention of disappearing into another marriage or hiding in another name. You know what I mean? And he was cool with that. He wasn't going to give up his either. So we're a two name family, but it worked out. When you were growing up, did you think about that, about giving up your last name? Or do you think this is like a new thing that's happening where people kind of want to retain their identity, even when they're merging? I think it's becoming a lot more common. I know when I grew up, I kind of always assumed that I would take my husband's last name. Um, I grew up a very traditional family, you know, out of the South, military background. So there was nothing in my background that would tell me to do anything other than kind of merge with my husband. So it wasn't until I was getting divorced and had to make an intentional decision that I even thought about an alternative. I do feel like it's becoming a lot more common in especially younger generations. But speaking for myself, it never even occurred to me to have my own name. That's so interesting. It's, you know, it's something that I haven't come across before. I haven't. It really stood out to me when I was reading about you. And it's kind of funny because the people at the DMV and the social security plays and all that, they don't think about it either. Like there used to be people changing their name if you get married mm-hmm. um, or taking back a family name. But when I told them I just made up my name, they're like, oh, I don't know if you can do that. Like the <laughs> manager and stuff. I'm like, I, I know you can do this. It's okay. But no, it's, it's, it threw people for a loop for sure. Or you know how I've heard it is that people don't want to be associated with their family. You know, they had a bad upbringing. Yeah. There's all kinds of reasons people might want to change their name or own a new name. Obviously there's celebrity too. People do it as celebrities all the time and nobody thinks anything of it or a stage name or a pen name. But yeah, it can just be as simple as the identifier for the new chapter of your life. When you think about it, there's a lot of cultures that go through these naming ceremonies many times over the course of somebody's life. A new name marks a new chapter in somebody's life. And it just doesn't happen to be part of our cultural history right now, but why couldn't it be? Well, I've never actually heard about that. I'm not that cultured, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. You're teaching me so much already. So talk to me about how this is a big part of your life, though, is like finding ways to show yourself that you're heading into a new chapter. I knew that was a big part of your business now, but something significant that happened after your divorce. I'd love to hear you talk about that. Well, yeah, my entire career. So I've been an interior designer now for 11 years. And that entirely came out of getting divorced because when I got divorced, I was lucky enough to get to keep the house that he and I had together, um, which is a blessing because obviously homeownership is a real big part of financial security in in our world. But it also meant that I was living in this house where I had had all these memories with my ex husband and where everything that was in the space we had chosen together, the paint colors or the furniture and all the memories that went with all those things. And that was really, it was kind of suffocating. I'm literally waking up every single day staring at my past. And also what felt like my failure. You know, I failed at marriage and there it is staring me in the face every single minute I'm in my house. So my process, I lived like that for a little while. And I one day decided I couldn't live like that anymore. I was miserable. And I just started changing my space and I made some horrible design decisions. Like I painted my ceiling black, not a good move in terms of aesthetics, but it was an awesome move in terms of that emotional breaking free, partly because it was so bad. It really gave me the freedom to go, okay, well, I guess I'm in a new space now. And you're staring into a dark hole though. Oh my gosh. 
It was, yeah, I called it my angry phase. It was not pretty. (laughs) So, you know, and then what happened was that broke me free. And then I became really intentional. I kind of created this like no boys allowed space at using pastel pinks and purples. And I got rid of the queen bed and I got myself a twin bed, like, you know, bed for one person. It sure is. Wow. Oh my gosh. I know. I loved it. Was it a way of like really just trying to not bring anyone back? Yeah. I really wanted it to be about me and just have some some solitude and some time for healing you know and i describe all this as if i was really aware of it through the process i was somewhat aware of it through the process but it was also experimental like mm. i can look back and see what was happening but it unfolded very organically too that's really interesting because i think a lot of people you know people that have come on this podcast a big thing that they encourage is just listening to your intuition and not right. having a plan necessarily so i think it's interesting how you're talking about it you're experimenting with it and it wasn't like one day you're one way and next day you're only going to have it this way. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was yeah. just like one step after another. And I think that's how we are when we're in any kind of a crisis mode. You know, if, if an earthquake knocks down your house, you may or may not have an emergency plan. Like you may or may not have some food that's easy to access that you can get to or whatever. But that's only one tiny part of surviving any crisis. And divorce is a crisis. Your life as you knew it and as you planned for it falls apart. And all you can do is put one foot in front of the other and hope that it leads you somewhere good. And generally it does as long as you keep making forward progress. But when you're in the middle of that, you don't know what the other side's going to look like. It's terrifying. I really say that I think what people grieve the most, you know, after breakup or divorce is the future they thought they were going to have. Yeah. It's gone forever. Hmm. So I don't know. I want to hear about that. You know, that was a big reality for you. So how did you work through those emotions and found acceptance around, I have no idea what's going to happen next? Well, you know, I think for me, it became finding something new. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what finding my own last name was about and what reinventing my my physical space was about. It's like, okay, well, if the future I thought was going to be mine isn't going to be mine, then I guess I'd better come up with something else. I mean, I had no career. I had no marriage. Mm -hmm. I had a real blank slate I was working with, which I guess gave me a lot of freedom, which is nice. But it's also... um, you know, staring at a blank canvas of any kind is is terrifying. But what happened for me was, you know, I redid my space. I sold all my furniture on Craigslist and I bought all, you know, quote unquote, new, it was new to me, furniture on Craigslist. And I recognized that a talent that I'd always had, which is putting spaces together, it's just something that comes naturally to me, but I never took seriously as a career because it didn't feel like it was helpful to the world. I have a geology degree. I was in the Peace Corps. Like that's the kind of stuff I saw myself doing. But by going through and doing my own space and realizing how much that helped me move out of that depressing, awful chapter into, oh, I could see something wonderful is possible in my, my future life. Then I turned that into wanting to do that for other people. And so that became my new reality. My new reality kind of got tied into other people's new reality. And I'm so happy you gave yourself permission to do that because I hear what you're saying that you felt like, I can't take this seriously. This is like about aesthetics. Oh yeah. It's not saving people. And yet you you had to see for yourself that it does. And and people rely on a sense of home to anchor them in the world. 
Absolutely. And I think that almost any career can be turned into something that is useful and powerful. We talk about art in general, right? What good is art? And yet art and music are things that fill our soul. And so the home can be that way too. Or it can be a sink of energy and resources and, you know, just kind of a showpiece of luxury and not be serving the world. So for me, it was about building a company and making sure that my client base were linked to something that's useful and helpful. Do you work with people that are coming out of some crisis or no? And and if not, how often do you see clients come to you in that transitional moment? Well, it's really interesting because I thought I was going to work with people in that moment a lot. Mm -hmm. And what I've discovered is two things. First, that actual post-divorce time, it's very personal. It's very painful. It can also be very financially unstable. So I don't tend to work with people in that moment very often. I tend to work with people a little bit more after they've already emerged and done some of that work for themselves. And in a lot of the other transitions in life, especially empty nesting, that's a big one. Yeah. Uh, new marriages where they're trying to merge, especially if it's a second marriage, and they're trying to merge lives that are already established. First careers, especially somebody who's about 10 years into their career, but they feel like they're still living in college. Like when they look around, they're like, work really hard. And yet it looks like I'm still in a dorm room. So it's become about transition, but not specifically about divorce per se. And then what I've realized is that we're always in transition. Life is never static. And so one of my jobs has become to help people become aware that their life and their house should always be refreshed. It should always be about what is coming and not an obstacle to their potential future and their success and their possibility. How do you open people up to that idea? Well, uh, I wrote my book. So I have my book called Happy Starts at Home. And it's very much about what in your house is bringing you joy and what in your house is maybe just there because you feel guilty that you have to keep it or because somebody gave it to you or because you feel like it's too expensive to get rid of it, right? So the psychology of the house If we talk about it, people become aware of it and they look around and go, huh, you're right. I've always hated that chair. Maybe I should get rid of it. So, so much of any kind of self-help work is just developing an awareness. And then action tends to be easy once we have that awareness. So I have my book. I talk about these things on my website. My approach to design, just the the name Seriously Happy Homes, it's not about luxury. It's about Mm. happiness. And so, you know, I just sprinkle it around. I talk to people like you. (laughs) I guess I just meant in terms of, like you're saying, you build awareness and then action usually comes after it. I wish you were sitting here in my apartment right now. I've been in it for four years. I never thought you could be in a place for four years, but I realized how easily it can happen. Mm -hmm. And I have these couches that just drag me down. And it's just like, I so badly want to revamp the space. I want to feel different. And I want it exactly like we're talking to mark different moments in my life. Like I look at it and they got in so dirty and one has to go whole. It just is like, I'm staring into this part of myself that I don't want to see. Mm-hmm. So what keeps you from changing them? You know, it's really just cost. It's like about, should I really be putting money into a new couch when it should be going somewhere else probably, or I should hold on to it? You know, it just, it's that. Yeah. And I hear that all the time. And so the questions, because my job isn't to give an answer. My job is to ask questions. So the questions I would ask would be things like, does it have to be completely new, right? For me, I was able to get that 
new feeling from a Craigslist find. So I sold my old couch. I bought a new couch, but it wasn't new. It probably cost me 150 bucks. So does it have to be new would be one of the questions. Another question would be, how much energy is it taking away from you every day to see the things you hate? And what is that affecting elsewhere in your life? You know, Because if we hate the things that are on our body or in our house or in our life in general, then it can make it so that we are not at our best and therefore not succeeding as much as we could making money or making friends or making relationships. So it's about evaluating what is the sink, you know, how much is it sucking our energy? And also what are some possible solutions that don't necessarily cost thousands of dollars? Mm -hmm. I think it's such a great point because in terms of like making friends, for example, could be like, oh, I don't want to bring people over yet until the place looks better. Or like for me, it's like I have my desk in my living room, like, you know, it's within the home. So ultimately, like you're you're trying to start a vision for a brand, let's say, and you look mm-hmm. over at your apartment and you don't feel like it reflects what you're trying to send off in a brand when you're at exactly. work at your desk. And, yep. you know, I'd be interested in what you'd have to say about this, because as I spoke to like family about it and stuff, a lot of, not a lot of them, but some of them were like, until you stop Airbnb, you shouldn't get a really gorgeous couch. And then I realized like, in a sense, it's like you're putting your life on hold. It's something that you don't even know when it's going to end or what would happen when it does. Like, and you're putting on hold for who, for what? Yep. And it's usually fear-based, which is, it's totally legitimate, but you can also flip that on its head and go, okay, well, let's say I am Airbnb, let's say I invest a little bit more into my space, not just for me, but also for my tenants they might actually like the space more and I might get better tenants, more frequent tenants. Maybe they'll pay a little bit more for the space. You know, money is a very fluid thing. Yeah, Um, they were saying that they would ruin it. That was like their idea. Yeah, and the thing is you don't want... So when I first got remarried, my husband is a wonderful human being, but he's a contractor and he's not a gentle human. Uh And so my rule when we first set up our home together, our new home was everything had to have its first dent already. So again, I tended to buy things either like on Wayfair or Overstocks. They were so inexpensive that I didn't have to worry about them or from Craigslist so that I could get a pretty good piece of furniture, but maybe it already had a little, you know, a little stain on it or something in the back. That way I wasn't going to panic when something happened because our furniture should not be precious. If we're like helicoptering around our furniture, trying to make sure our friends don't spill their wine on it, that's not good either. (laughs) So it's a balance. Oh my God, how interesting. What an interesting way to to begin something, saying you have to have a dent. I mean, it just, it's mind boggling. There should be like a stain on the couch so you don't panic when you do the first thing. You're right. Maybe. Yeah. You know, some people love thrift shopping for their clothes for the same reason, just because it's so inexpensive. You can just play, you can experiment. It's not, you know, if you spend a hundred dollars on a blouse, you have a different relationship with that piece of clothing than you do if you spent $10 on a blouse. I don't know how to address this question without it being so far-fetched. I don't even know how to like contain it. But <laughs> when you talk about like a relationship to a hundred dollar blouse versus one that you find thrifting, did something happen like after your divorce that you started to think about your relationship with things differently? I think that came out of two things. I would say the consciousness of it for me came out of starting my company because anybody who's an entrepreneur knows you have to create a brand and that is a huge conceptual mind weird thing, okay? Because you're like, oh, who am I in the world? How do I want to show up? How do I want people to talk about me? Like, that's crazy. 
for me, at least when I went through that process, I thought about it in relationship to my clothes and my car. Cause I drive to all my clients' homes. So what I drive, how I show up in my coach, if you will, you mm-hmm. know, that sets a tone. What I wear sets a tone. Um, and for me, bringing people into my house is a very important part of my socializing. So that sets a tone. So it was partly with the divorce, but it was as much part of becoming an entrepreneur and having to think about how I'm showing up in the world that I really started thinking about my relationship with things. But it also came out of the fact that I didn't want to be a luxury brand. I didn't want to take that road in interior design, which is a pretty normal road, because I wanted there to be meaning behind what I was doing. And so I had to think about well, what does that mean? And can there be meaning if somebody does buy the Ralph Lauren $10,000 couch? Or can there only be meaning if they buy the cheap Ikea couch? Like I had to really get my head around that because for me, I thought about money as an obstacle to meaning, you know, for lots of reasons. And it's not, like I said, money is not a real thing. It's very flexible depending on circumstances. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about going from the twin bed toward meeting someone. Sure. To putting yourself back, back out there. Okay, so I created my little dollhouse. It was all pinks and purples and a little twin bed. And I loved everything about it. But by doing that, it allowed me to heal. I had my time of solitude. And after you heal after, you know, for a while, at least for me, I was ready to date and explore a little bit. And I knew that, you know, because I hadn't been so intentional about creating my little space, that it was a little man repellent, if you will. It was, it was very girly. Uh-huh. And so I shifted some things because I didn't want to make it not me. It still needed to be my space. But I did some things like I sold that bed and I got myself a full-size bed on Craigslist. I got two nightstands so that I would create that psychological space for two people. And I added some like greens and some other colors to the space to soften that whole feminine effect. And I actually added like some globes and some maps. And so I made it less like girly cocoon and more like world traveler. And so it was still very much about me and the space that I would love, but it wasn't like no boys allowed. And that was part of me exploring what it felt like to date again and to open myself up to somebody again and to say, yeah, there might be space in my life and in my house for another human, which was terrifying. It was very scary. Why? Oh my gosh. I mean, I don't know about other people, but for me, when I was growing up as a little girl, like getting married was the be all and end all of my life's purpose. Like you grow up, you get married, you have babies. It's what you do. Like that's a girl's story. And so to fail at that, I mean, it breaks your heart and it makes you feel like you've just failed at the one thing you were supposed to do in life. And so when you fail at something, you don't necessarily want to just put yourself out there again and you know, you kind of think, oh, I'm not good at marriage. Why would I do that again? So, yeah. I also think that if you were to see yourself, quote unquote, fail again, you'd really think like you have this pattern for it. It's like, it's you're destined. Yeah. I mean, it's like you put your hand on a hot burner. Are you going to do it again? You got burned. Only stupid people would do that. You also don't want to be lonely. I've never felt that in terms of relationships. Hmm. And I've always heard other people feel that way. I never have personally felt that. I don't know if it would be different if I went through a marriage. Because I also know that I'm someone that thinks that I'll choose so wisely that I would never divorce. And I can imagine just how crushing, because I've gone now 31 years kind of preaching 
pitching this idea to myself mm-hmm. and also questioning it at times more than ever, you know, divorce, yeah. the benefit of it. But I could imagine like all the psychological things that could come up. Was I such a fool all along? Think, did I set myself up to like prove myself wrong? Right. And marriage, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of my friends and marriage does tend to feel different from not married. You know, it's a contract. I mean, it's actually a legal binding contract, not only with this other human, but also with your community, with our government, with your church, if you're involved in a church. I mean, it's marriage is kind of a big deal, even if you think it's not a big deal. It does something psychologically to you. And I think that's good. I think it's a ceremony. I think our I think we need more ceremony, but it means that it's also a big, painful thing if it ends. Mm. At least it was for me. What was the shift for you from non-married, but committed, even engaged to now married? For my second marriage? Well, I guess like, was it different your second time? Yeah. Yeah. I was so much more aware and intentional my second time. I wanted to make sure that I really knew who I was before I got married. I did a lot of work with therapists and and some other people, like a nutritionist. Like I really wanted to get myself in order before I partnered with a person the second time. Mm. First time it was all Disney. I'm like, oh, this is going to be amazing. We're in love and we're going to get married. And it was, there was no intention other than this is going to be great. And then the thing that got me over all the fear was just that this person that I met was wonderful enough and thankfully persistent enough that he didn't go away as many times as I pushed him away, that I decided that I would rather face my fear and face failure again than not have him in my life. And that's what got me past being afraid and getting married again. You saw with him that he was worth, you know, precise again. Yeah. And I think that's part of what transition has come to mean to me too. It's like, I would rather experience the joy of whatever the adventure is, Mm -hmm. even if it has to end. And that can be a vacation or a job or a relationship. I'd rather have the adventure and have the memories with the pain of of not having it anymore than to never have had the adventure in the first place. Absolutely. I think about if knowing what I know about my relationships, that they would end, would I do them all over again? And I say, I would. And I would just go back and love even more. Yeah, be more present in the moment. Yeah, I'd be more present. I've realized that I think loving someone is, you know, a privilege while you have it. And when you're not with someone, you no longer are in this privileged position of calling attention to certain things that you notice about them, Mm -hmm. reasons why you love them. I would just go back and be more perceptive and, and let them know how they've touched me. Yeah. And then it's also a matter of recognizing that some relationships are for a season, not for a lifetime. And that, you know, just like we can't take all the belongings into our home because it would become cluttered and full and there wouldn't be any room to walk or breathe, things do have to flow out as well. Relationships have to flow out. Jobs have to flow out in order to make room for what's coming next. And there's a lot of faith and trust that goes into that. You got to really have a lot of faith that something else is coming, but you can't hold on to everything because it'll never let you have the next thing. The biggest thing in life is learning to not force others to stay or yourself to stay. Mm -hmm. And just again, and it's a very difficult thing, but just to have trust 
that this is, again, intentional, that it's leading you somewhere else, but also to not live with too much anticipation of what's to come, thinking yeah, that you that's can't the control it. Absolutely. Yeah. And not to walk away prematurely, you know, not don't be like, well, there might be a better relationship out there. I guess I'll just, you know, take this one for granted or leave it because relationships do take work and they do take a lot of stick to um, mm, That's so good. Stick to <laughs> Did you come up with that? Uh, probably my mom. She's got most of the brilliance in my life. <laughs> oh, that's good. Okay. So you're someone that I could really just ask these questions about marriage. I'm fascinated by those who are married and they have a fight and there's a lot of tension yet they lie side by side in the mm. same bed and they wake up and they face the day. How do you do that? Do you mean how do you get past the fight or what do you mean? Like how does it, it just is like so, I feel like there's like the wildest shift and maybe it's because who you're choosing, but oftentimes when you're just in a relationship with someone and you fight with them, people don't want to be near that person. They don't think that they could be in the same bedroom or under the same roof as them. You know, Mm -hmm. people will disappear and they'll come back when they're better. Mm -hmm. But when you're living with someone and you're married to them, especially when you have a family with them, sometimes I guess like there's not this feeling that there's an allowance to bolt and people are somehow able to process, I feel like, the frustration or the fears or the doubts in a different way to remain, to stay. Mm -hmm. I think, oh, so, I mean, that's a huge question that you're asking. But I would say that first, one of the things to remember is every day you're choosing to stay. When we feel trapped in something, most humans will want to get out of it because we don't like to be trapped. We get claustrophobic real easy. And even when you have a marriage contract, you still have to choose every single day to stay. And so when you recognize that you have that control and that power, that nobody's forcing you to be there, it keeps oxygen in the relationship. I also think, on the other hand, that you do have to create some space. You can't always be all up in each other's business or you'll drive each other crazy. So it's something different in every relationship, but you have to have some outlet that gives you some freedom to take a walk on your own or have a hobby on your own or vent to somebody that you trust to not you know, bring it up later. Mm. You have to be able to still be an individual. You have to be an individual who's choosing to stay because the marriage is bigger than just you or that other person now. And, and then it's just faith. And, and it's also not staying when it's not healthy for the whole situation. You know, staying is not always the answer, mm-hmm. but choosing to stay is an action that you take every single day. Some people would say that's not a very romantic idea. Hmm. But I think it's almost the most romantic idea because, again, it becomes about choice. I think one of the most unromantic things is people that feel like they're powerless and they need someone so much and that's why they're staying. And I've been that way, you know, just so codependent. I didn't know what my life would look like. I didn't think I could lead myself. And it's the most unromantic idea. Yeah. Yeah. And in our, the movies and stuff we watch kind of give us a strange idea of what romance is in the first place. Mm -hmm. But Things are more valuable the more we work for them. You think about if you run out your door to the mailbox and come back in, that's not very valuable. That's not a big moment. If, you, on the other hand, you run 26 miles for a marathon, that is a moment. You had to work 
really, really, really hard for that run. So when we invest and when we power through and when we say, I'm going to stay even though this is painful because I have something that I'm working towards that's bigger than this moment, that's where the value shows up. So, you know, humans are not great at looking long-term at the long game and seeing what's the end goal. But if your marriage and a life built with somebody and a story shared with somebody is the end goal, then the fight you have on a Tuesday, you know, it's a, it's a moment that you can get past if you choose to, especially if you are trying to live a relationship with respect and you're not calling that person names constantly or really thinking poorly of them. You do have to hold that person with respect and honor, even when they're being a big fat jerk because of the long game. Mm, The long game. You know, you talked about the second time around, you really worked on yourself and you made sure it was intentional. So for someone that hasn't been married before, and I think people can get lost in a moment, you know, they get lost in finding love finally, and and they don't want to rock the boat. So they don't want to ask actually too many questions about the future, what things would have to look like, or, you know, just the bigger questions. How would you talk with someone about being intentional? What are some questions you think they should ask themselves? Oh, um, well, it's hard. It's, it's really hard when you're on the, the Disney version of, of marriage. It's beautiful. And I wouldn't want to take that away from anybody. But I guess one of the big questions I would want to ask is, could you live without this person? Because I think if you feel like if you can't live without this person, then it's not going to be healthy. Because either you're not going to be asking the right questions about finances or values or whatever, or you're not going to speak up about your own values and needs. So I think to go into a marriage really, really successfully, you need to be able to say, yeah, I could totally live without you. I just don't want to. Mm. I choose not to, which is how I feel in my new marriage. I, I make my own money. I have friends and interests and I can cook for myself or he can cook for himself. We do actually do our own laundry. We are actually two very strong, independent human beings who are choosing to live this adventure together. So, you know, can you live without this person and then choosing to live with them because my life is better and more full and I, and I achieve more with my husband. He pushes me. He believes in me. He encourages me. I can do more and be better with him than I can without him, but I could still totally be without him, you know? Yeah. And you could still have a life without him. Yeah, absolutely. But I wouldn't want to. So that's the beauty. That's the beautiful pairing right there. That is so beautiful. So beautiful. Did you feel like you're a really different person when you were coming into this relationship? Well, my family describes it as I was the person they knew me growing up. It's it's like in my first marriage, I kind of disappeared. So they see me in my marriage now as the person I was when I was growing up. Oh, I feel like that's the golden life is to return to yourself. Yeah. Exactly. And I wouldn't say that I recognized in my first marriage that I was disappearing, but that's definitely what what happened for lots of reasons. So I am a more full expression of myself in this marriage. It feels wonderful. I think it's so interesting how you cannot realize that you're disappearing or how much you only see in hindsight. And yet it's been so obvious to other people. Could you talk about how you're disappearing? Oh, and it is really hard because I look back and I'm like, how could I have made other choices? But I don't know 
I don't know the answer, but I can give an example of, um, I was at some family gathering with his family at one point and a cousin or somebody kind of a distant relation that I didn't really know that well actually asked me why I was so miserable. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like I, I had no idea I was unhappy, but this person who didn't know me and hardly ever saw me straight up asked me why I was so unhappy. It's insane to me even to think back. It's, it's like you li- you're living in a cloud. Do you think they just saw sadness in you or like you were, I don't know, kind of, you don't even know? I really don't know. And I've thought about it a lot. It's been, you know. Do you think they were right though? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, I mean, I ended up divorced, so I yeah. definitely wasn't happy. You know, and my family is interesting because they they weren't 100% supportive of me getting married. They didn't think it was a good match, but they also saw, you know, I'm a very stubborn person. When I have my mind set to something, I, I'm going to do it. And they didn't want to um, create a rift. So when I decided to get married, they supported me in that. And, you know, they were 100% on board, but they were worried for me. So the nice thing was I had that support both going in. So it didn't alienate me from my family. And then when I was leaving that marriage, they were still there for me and they were my support system as I was finding my way again. Mm-hmm. But gosh, the, you know, the question of how do you, you know, I mean, how do you recognize your own depression? I don't know that people know that they're depressed when they are. I don't know. You know, I've, I've sunk in deep and I was someone that never, I don't think I would have ever thought I could let myself get so far away from myself or become so helpless. Yeah. Um, it's shocking to me now, but at the time I was aware, though, though I'll tell you, and I was thinking about it, somehow it hit me today is that things that I weren't aware of, for example, is that when my weight plummeted under a hundred pounds, mm-hmm. I didn't notice that I had been losing weight and what that looked like. I knew that when I found out, I knew that it was because of the sadness and the anxiety I was having, mm-hmm. but I didn't even see it happening. And the person, you know, my boyfriend never even told me. Hmm. So I think that there's ways that it's a way that we not really protect ourselves, but protect ourselves from having to change or wake up. Oh, that's sure. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I would say, so many of the symptoms we see when we are unhappy, whether it's overeating or undereating or overexercising or um, isolating ourselves socially, those are symptoms. They're not the problem. The problem is whatever is creating the unhappiness. And so I guess I would say that it's not so much what the person who's going through it can do. It's what the people around can do, what you and I can do for people when we see them being unhappy, like that cousin. You know, when, when she said that to me, I didn't recognize what was going on, but it was a, it was a seed. It was a drop in a bucket of me going, oh, that's weird. And when enough people speak up around you to go, are you okay? How are you doing today? Do you want to go for a walk? Ultimately, hopefully enough hands reach out to you that you go, yeah, I need, I need some help. And you emerge. Wow. I feel you on that. I remember the first piece that I wrote about my eating disorder was about that very thing about it ended kind of on the need to be someone that really asks, like, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And is really interested in the answer. And I remember that though nothing that anyone said was like the magic fix at the time, like right. you said, it was like seeds that I remember distinctly, like for sure taken all together. That's what woke me up. That's what made it like yeah. impossible to keep going. And I say everything from like kids that chased me down in New York and were like, 
taunting me to waiters that said I couldn't stay at restaurants if I wasn't going to eat to mm-hmm. a boyfriend saying, crying suddenly and saying, you're killing yourself. Mm-hmm. All of that taken together, like th- that's what I look at as the things that saved my life. Yeah. It was just aligned by one person out of the blue. Yep. So as a community, we should always remember that we never know what word or what smile is going to be helpful to somebody and never be stingy with it. Always be generous with our kindness because it can save somebody's life. I'm such a believer in that. That makes me so happy, you know, to hear. It really does. And I think that for some reason, people are so shy about giving compliments. I know. Like, what's the, why would anyone like hoard a compliment? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. And I try, I do try to go out of my way. If I see somebody who's wearing a spectacular pair of shoes at the grocery store, I will generally say so. I'll be like, oh my gosh, I love your shoes, you know, because you just never know where somebody's at. And maybe it's nothing, you know, maybe everybody else has complimented her on those shoes too, or maybe nobody has, which is more likely. It's just a human moment. And boy, can we use more of those. I think people are always surprised to find out that people are not actually complimented or approached as often as we think. Yeah, especially the ones that look the most beautiful and the most successful because everybody thinks they have all of it together, right? right. And that they're completely... That they don't well. need it. That they don't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and frequently they're the ones who are the most fragile. Mm-hmm. How did you navigate fragileness when you were starting your own business? Did you ever feel at times like, where is this going? Or... <laughs> Seriously, that's oh my, yeah. That's yeah. the funniest question I've ever heard. Yeah. So my um, my husband and my bookkeeper, who were the two people kind of involved in my business emotionally when we were getting started, would tell you that I did frequently. I mean, not all the time, but I not infrequently would hide under my desk just for a minute. I'm just like, hey, it's you know, it's it's nice and dark and quiet and safe down here. I'm just gonna <laughs> go under my desk and cry for a minute. <laughs> and uh, at one point, I think my my accountant, she's a friend of mine too. And she threatened to put a little sign underneath the desk on the bottom. Like if you looked up and be like, it's all going to be okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, oh Lord, being an entrepreneur, there is so much self-doubt. It's crazy. It is. And you know, I think it's also kind of what you hear is that people can end up stopping right when they were so close. Oh, of course. Yeah. The thing I have discovered in 11 years of doing actual business is there's no right answer. Nobody has the magic silver bullet. So you just have to, like you said earlier, listen to your own intuition. Keep an eye on your guiding values and principles because you're going to get all all kinds of well-intended advice that some of it might be a good fit, but most of it won't be. You know, it's sort of like if somebody comes to your house and like, oh, you should totally get a green sofa. Maybe you hate green. They should get a green sofa, Mm -hmm. but maybe not you, right? Right. We do know what we like. We know what kind of world we want to live in. We know what kind of world we want to build. And we have to listen to that and keep coming back to it. The the most valuable money I've spent in my business is actually on my hypnotherapist. She and I will do these sessions where we take these magical hypnotherapy journeys. And I'm just, basically, you're going inside of yourself for your own answers. And then you come out of it and you flawed forward. That's been much more useful to me than any of the business coaches that I've paid who have like systems and stuff because I had to figure out my own system. Right. God. 
Such a good point. Those systems, they're all over the place. Oh my gosh, yes. And they can be very useful. Like if you've never used QuickBooks, having somebody give you a skill set can be worth its weight in gold. So you're not having to reinvent the wheel. But in terms of, I don't know, there's just so many things you can spend money on that in fact, you just need to do your work and you know, do the hustle and get the clients. And <laughs> is there anything about your, your career that you ended up going into a direction that you did not expect? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. So when I started this whole thing, I thought I was only going to do color and redesign and redesign is helping people use what they already have. Um, and it was because I had this conception that any level of luxury or expensive interior design took the meaning away, which it does not. I've learned, but that was my concept when I started. But over time, so I I would have these clients who would hire me to help them choose a color for their house or help them rearrange their living room. And then that builds trust with them. And so they ask you to do a little bit more or a little bit more like, oh, can you help me with just picking out a counter for my new kitchen? Oh, can you help me with this bathroom remodel? And next thing I know, 11 years later, (laughs) you know, I'm doing whole house remodels. Mm. It's crazy. That's incredible. What a good feeling. Look at it. Honestly, what a good feeling about you know, what you're capable of creating. And yes, you have to figure out what is okay to be surprised by. I relate it to raising children a lot because like you might have a baby and think this is going to be my baby and she's going to like ballet. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out she likes heavy metal and roller derby. And you're like, okay, I guess we're doing roller derby. You know? Yeah. So there are things about having a business that are going to be surprising and you just adapt to it. Mm -hmm. The things you don't adapt are those underlying values. You know, so for me, it was practical design, design that was going to make you feel happier in your home and in your life and help you be more successful. It was never going to be about, you know, impressing your neighbors or (laughs) whatever, or, you know, fitting out your third house because somebody, you know, your in-laws think you should have a house in the Hamptons or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the values that shouldn't surprise you. That shouldn't shift. It should only strengthen. But the execution can totally surprise you. You know, for all I know, I'll be manufacturing my own textiles someday. I don't see that happening, but I don't know. And as long as it stays true to my values, it's fine. It sounds like you're really building momentum too. Like you trust in the momentum that you're able to build. Yeah. Yeah. And that just comes from the fact that every single year I've put out that faith and it's come back to me. And so it, it's like a muscle. You, you build those courage and faith muscles stronger and stronger every time you flex them. I mean, the things that put me under my desk now are way bigger and scarier than the things that put me under my desk. Right. Before. Something's always sending you under the desk. Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily physically go there anymore, yeah, but yeah. I'll still do it emotionally. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. What do you love most about where you're at right now emotionally and just within yourself? When I started a company, people said I was so courageous and I didn't really see it that way because at the time, like I said, I had no, I had no marriage. I had no career. I didn't really feel like I had that much to lose when I started my company. At this point, I've built something really successful. And so I actually have a lot invested in my company and in my team and in my marriage and in my car. Like I have got both financial and emotional investment that actually makes it scarier now. So I guess what I'm most pleased about is I I am courageous now. I'm still taking risks. I'm still staying true to my values when at this point I have something to lose. I have skin in the game. I'm proud of myself for that. 
And how was it that originally you didn't say, okay, I don't have a career, I don't have a marriage, I have to go get employed by someone else? What made you just go after your own thing? Hmm. I'm not, I'm not sure if I remember. I think, huh. Because I feel like a lot of people would think they don't have the option, like they've got to go do something. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> that says a lot about you, that you have no idea. Well, I mean, it's over a decade ago that I made that decision. Um, yeah, I, I guess I wanted, and this has been the reason behind my doing anything for the last decade, it's I just wanted to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. I guess I felt like I wasn't, like making this decision wasn't going to keep me from going and getting a job. So I could try it for three months or six months or a year, and it wouldn't keep me from going and getting a job anyway. So I guess it didn't feel like I had to make an either or decision in that case. So you never thought about it in terms of like a marriage, like your first marriage, you felt like you failed, but if your business didn't work out and you had to go get a job, you don't think you would have been like, I just failed in business. Huh? Um, I, Oh, such a good question. I think one of the things I've learned about myself through being an entrepreneur is how much, what's the word when you, oh, when you have agency, Mm. I've realized how much agency I have in my own life. And I think that if I were to go get a job right now, I would approach it so much differently than if I were to go get a job in phase one of my life when I took what other people gave me. You know, that's how my first marriage was. It's how my first jobs were. I'm like, oh, I guess these are the rules that I get to live by. By having my own company, I realized that rules are not really a thing. <laughs> I mean, mm. what, what rules are there? There are only the rules that we agree to. And so if I were to go get a job now, I would see what I could make of it. I would take that on as its own new adventure. And I would I don't know, maybe take on management or (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I don't have a great answer, but I know that I wouldn't feel powerless about it the way I would have in the past. Yeah. I think that it's a theme running through what you've been saying is that you know that if you put in your time with something, you'd look at it as an adventure that you're happy to have embarked on. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not as afraid now to ask for what I need and to say, here's an idea, you know, and most employers love having employees who want to make their company better and treat their clients better. And, you know, it doesn't mean that every job would be a fit because there's a lot of places too, where they just want you to be a cog in the machine. Yeah. But I I just feel like I'd make it work. I I guess that's the lesson. I, I got divorced and I survived it and came out stronger and better on the other side. So if that happened to me through divorce, the thing that I considered kind of the biggest failure in my life, then why couldn't it happen with everything else I would take on? I think that's such a huge point to get to with where you're at, you know, in life. Like, you know, some people wait so long to get divorced because of fear, right? So they don't have as much time to show themselves that like if they could overcome this, that maybe everything else that they've been fearful of trying, they could actually handle. Mm -hmm. And I think by maybe letting go when you did, it's like now you have this huge life in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's just incredible. And I see a lot of people who let age get in the way of that conversation. They're like, oh, well, you know, if I had left the marriage when I was 30 or if I had left the marriage when I was 40, but now I'm 50 or I'm 60, it's never too late. Late. Yeah. I mean, what do you want to do? Spend the rest of your life miserable? Like whether you have a month or a decade or a hundred years left of life, you might as well spend them living 
people become so afraid of, they don't remember what it, and it kind of goes back to remembering who you were. They don't remember how to live. We don't know how strong we are until we're challenged. Mm. What does it mean to break upward to you? Break upward. I think it comes back to what I said a second ago, where the pain really does make you stronger. It makes you realize you're stronger than whatever it was you went through. What comes to you immediately when you think about why you're thankful for the heartbreak that you went through? Oh, well, it might seem kind of trite and Disneylandish, but I wouldn't have the marriage or the career that I have without both, not just the divorce, not just the breakup, but also the marriage. Because like I said, that is part of the fabric of who I am. So I am grateful. I'm sorry that he and I had to go through the pain that we did, but I'm grateful for the marriage and I'm grateful for the breakup because I am overjoyed with my life right now and I wouldn't have had it otherwise. You know, I have to salute you. There's this fear of, I don't have the life I had anymore. I don't have the life I thought I was going to have. And look at the life you gave yourself. Yeah. And it's real easy to get stuck in bitterness or disappointment or regret about the life you thought you were going to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can totally live there. Uh, And there's a wonderful book, the Who Moved My Cheese book. That's very much about that. I didn't know it was about that. Oh my gosh. It's a great little book. It's a wonderful parable, but um, that's a pretty sad place to, to live. So, you know, grieve it, honor it because the grief is real when you have to let go of something that you thought was your future. But staying in that grief is one long death. And I'd rather live again. Mm. You really make me smile. You have a very therapeutic nature to you. Thank you. you. Do you get that often? (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, interior designers in general get accused of being interior design therapists. It's part of the job. (laughs) Oh my God, I wasn't expecting it at all. I was not expecting it. I I feel Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I was in a transfer for a few moments. I'm glad. Thank you for saying that because I do want, I mean, whether I'm a car salesman or an interior designer or whatever, I just want to add to people's lives. So I am glad that you're liking what I have to share. Yeah. And thank you for adding to this conversation. Tell my audience where they can find you. Uh, You can find me online at seriouslyhappyhomes.com. We got our website on there and I'm happy seriously on Instagram and at happy seriously on Facebook and Twitter. I'm all over the place. And then what areas What areas do you like do the homes in? So most of my work is local here to Seattle. And I do that very specifically because I love the geography and the design of the space. When we do designs here, they tend to be oh, just organic and simple and clean, but eclectic and whimsical. Like the Northwest world is really awesome. So if you haven't been here, you should come visit. How cool. Yes. Um, But I am able to help people virtually. We have a design uh, helpline that I also can do like Skype sessions and things like that. So I am able to do some work virtually, but most of my work is here in the Pacific Northwest Seattle area. Perfect. Thank you so much for this call. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for taking me on this adventure. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, 
tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at BreakUpward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D.com. And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone.